Well, good morning, church. Let's pray as we um, have a look at our final week in our sermon series on money and wealth. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much once again for uh, the rich beauty and the gift of being able to wake up this morning and being able to get out of bed and jump on our public transport or drive here and to spend time with each other. We recognize that all of these things are gifts from you. Uh, Forgive us for times when we have thought that all of this is a work of our own hands. Uh, Forgive us of times where we have asserted our independence over and against dependence on you. And so today, as we come to your word, would you please open up our eyes and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome, as I mentioned, to our fourth and final week on our sermon series on money and wealth. It's been a jam-packed month, and after this, we're going to slow down a little bit in the lead-up to Christmas. Um, But I hope all of this has been helpful for you, right? Uh, I want to give us a bit of a recap before we dive into our final uh, section. The first week, uh, we talked about how money matters to God, and God cares deeply about the topic because He knows that discussions regarding money brings out a lot of our fears and insecurities, and God cares too much that He wants us to meet, He wants to meet us in those fears and insecurities and apply grace to us. In the second week, we explored the errors of the prosperity gospel. We saw how one of its fundamental mistakes is that it promises too little. It fails to recognize that God has a greater inheritance for us in Christ. Last week, we unpacked the poverty gospel, less popular but no less harmful. And we saw it promises too much, that God's blessings, your redemption in Christ, God's approval of you cannot be bought by how much you give to Him. And this week, we're going to look at our third and final Christian misconception about money, which I call the piety gospel. And after that, we're going to look at our fifth and final S, probably the most controversial one in our series. And then what I want to do is I want to conclude this uh, morning with a vision for our church. And I hope that we can um, apply the things we've learned from Scripture uh, and apply together as a faith family. Now, there's a chance you've never heard of the term piety gospel before because I totally made that up, right? It doesn't exist anywhere, but I feel like it appropriately describes the misconception that I'm trying to deal with today. I've left this as the last one in our series because I think that this is the one that this is a misconception that we are most susceptible to and most vulnerable to. I would be so bold as to say that the piety gospel is actually what most Christian churches today subscribe to, and we are lesser for it. Now, let's define what I'm talking about first, right? Here is my best attempt uh, at summarizing what the piety gospel teaches. It's on your outlines, but it's also on the screen. And it's very simple. The piety gospel teaches live simply and give generously. Now, at face value, you might think, okay, what's wrong with that, right? This seems pretty consistent with the Bible's teaching on um, focusing our spending on necessities, on serving generously with money. You know, Stephen just then in his uh, praying about giving actually spoke about this, right? Live simply, give generously, right? I taught this over the last two weeks, yeah? So what could possibly be wrong? And that's what we're going to explore under point one. And as we work our way through the various passages, right, um, I hope you realize with a greater degree of clarity that God actually sees beyond our appearances and look at our hearts. 
God sees beyond our appearances and He looks at our hearts. But come to point one with me. I want to show you how the piety gospel actually sits awkwardly in between two spectrums. On the one side, there's the prosperity gospel, which says God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be wealthy. And on the other side of the spectrum is the poverty gospel, which teaches that God wants you to be poor. And so the piety gospel sits awkwardly somewhere in between, but it doesn't know what it stands for. And I think that's where most Christians today stand. We know what we're against, the two extremes, but we're not entirely sure what we're for. And I think there are three fundamental errors to this position. Firstly, it has no category for a theology of enjoyment. And so the piety gospel demands us of things that God himself doesn't demand. That's interesting. Second of all, the piety gospel has this invisible standard that no one can actually live up to. But thirdly, it connects salvation, redemption, and godliness. It reduces it, all of these things, to appearances. A lifestyle rather than a transformed life. So what we have in the piety gospel, as you come to point 1a with me, is a sort of contemporary asceticism. Fancy word, but asceticism is a lifestyle that is characterized by severe self-discipline, the avoidance of all forms of pleasures and indulgences for the sake of attaining a higher level of spirituality. Asceticism. We find different expressions of asceticism in different religions, different worldviews. So monks are a classic example of asceticism giving everything up in order to cultivate their relationship with God. And I think that the piety gospel is actually exactly that. A rejection of all pleasures and material things for the single pursuit of God. Because you see, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or whether you're here at Grace Point for the very first time. I'm willing to guess if I asked you, what do you believe Christians think about money? then your answer will come pretty close to something like this. You would say, God calls Christians to live simply just what you need. You might even say, God calls us to a sort of radical and sacrificial modesty. And then God tells us to give everything else away to the church, to the poor, to ministries, to organizations, right? Now, here's the thing. It's really hard to blame you if that's what you believe in. Because after all, this seems to be all that churches around the world teach. Have you realized? The times when churches typically talk about money is number one, to call out our excess, our materialism, our consumerism, or number two, to call us to gospel generosity. These are the two most common occasions when churches talk about money. So what else are Christians supposed to think, right? Don't blame you. But you see, what we preach sounds remarkably similar to the piety gospel, which reduces everything around us just to focus on the spiritual. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about mission and seeing people trust in Jesus. It's our desire to glorify God. And of course, right, none of us would deny any of that. But I hope you realize it fails to speak into the nuances and details and realities of life of rising interest rates, of your debt, 
of your responsibility to care for your family, on, on what you can or cannot spend on. These areas, as we talked about in week one, these areas are the nitty-gritty, sometimes ugly, and often confusing part of our lives. And that's why I think there is actually a deep dissatisfaction towards the piety gospel. And so here's what we do, okay? Every time we hear a sermon about spending too much, we feel bad, and so we pull back for a season, right? Then a few weeks go by, and we go back to our regular spending habits. Why? Because to talk about just not spending is not enough. Or every time we hear a sermon about giving, we increase our giving for a while, or we start giving for a while. But then when the new year comes around and our direct debit to church lapses, right? I'm not the only one. We kind of forget that it's happened and we go back to the same old, same old, right? Why? Because we don't have an integrated system to think about how to give or what to give. We don't understand how everything fits together. But here's the thing. We need to keep up our appearances to look more holy, to look more Christian. So as you come to point 1B with me, I want us to see how this can actually very easily breed contempt and resentment in the Christian life. Because you see, the piety gospel actually has an invisible standard that no one can live up to, right? So I'll give you an example. People who teach the piety gospel in some form or another will say things like, you know, brothers and sisters, you just need to live simply, right? Don't spend too much. But who defines simply? What's the measuring stick? And so because there is no definitive measuring stick, we often use utility or usefulness as the main decision-making factor, right? We're pragmatic like that. We only spend on what's useful if it serves a purpose. And if something doesn't have a practical purpose, then you shouldn't spend on it. You should give all that money away instead. Here are two problems, though. First of all, what's useful for you may not be useful for me. The whole thing is a little bit relative, isn't it? Second of all, how do we think about things that don't neatly fit into the usefulness category? Let me ask you, what do we do about things like art, like beauty, like flavors? What do you do about ice cream? How do you think through that, right? You see, for most Christians, we have no category for these things that don't have an immediate use. So the word simply is so hard to define. Can I have an extra shot of caramel in my coffee? It's 50 cents extra, but technically it's not essential to my coffee. I can still have a caffeine hit, so the purpose is still there. Shouldn't I save that 50 cents and give it away? The right answer is never have caramel in your coffee, right? It ruins the coffee, right? <laughs> but, but those are questions we ask, right? What does simple living look like when I buy a house or a car? Can I buy a German-engineered car, or do I have to buy Japanese-Korean or Chinese-made because it's half the price, though so it comes with seven-year warranty, right? Like, how do I think through this? What about a house, is it sinful to buy in certain suburbs? How many bedrooms is too much? What about giving generously? What does it look like for a family with two kids who are no longer in high school and so there's a bit more financial freedom? 
What does it look like for a single mom who's still putting her kid through school? What does it look like for a divorcee who is waiting on messy settlements to take place? What does it look like for a single worker who doesn't have much financial responsibilities? What does it look like for a retiree who's drawing on their super? How many coffees do I need to give up to support a ministry apprentice? Now, you see, because this standard is invisible, everyone fails to live up to that standard. And because there's no clarity and only the appearance of piety, we all just settle for keeping up with appearances rather than allowing the gospel or the word of God to transform our thinking and living. But here's the thing, right? Because the piety gospel has an invisible standard, what ends up happening is that we, we ourselves end up stepping in and allowing our own opinions, our own experiences, and our own expectations to frame that standard. So for example, right, if you grew up with lesser, you will typically measure everyone else by your standard. We see people spending on things that we wouldn't deem as useful, and we think, oh, that's too luxurious. That's too extravagant. They're being too excessive. And we think this not always because the Bible teaches it, but because of our own habits and patterns. Or maybe we think this because of our own envy, our own jealousy, or our own insecurity. Oh, if you grew up with, um, with slightly more, then likewise, you measure everyone else to your standard, right? You may think that you're better than others who don't give as much as you. Or you always feel this crushing weight of never measuring up to the standard of piety in the church. Have I given enough? It's always a nagging question. Do you see all of this becomes the perfect breeding ground for contempt and resentment. Contempt or dislike for another person who doesn't measure up to where I am at. Or there's always resentment for people who can't live like me. Why can't you be more like me? But here's the odd thing. We are still surprisingly attracted to the piety gospel. It looks ugly, right? But we still live by it. Why? Well, I think it's partly because it gives godliness or spiritual maturity a very tangible expression. It can come in the form of a lifestyle. That's why I call the piety gospel because it's focused on looking really devout, looking really devoted as a Christian, looking spiritual, looking full of faith is the goal. Because what's the alternative, right? Let me ask you, how can we really tell if a person is godly? According to scripture, we need to carefully examine their life. We need to ask what they love, how they live, what are their aspirations and dreams. We need to observe how they serve, how they're spending time with God, what their spiritual formation looks like. We need to see how do they respond when there's pressure, when there's conflict, when there's anger, when there's stress. There is just so much to explore to truly determine if a person is godly, but the piety gospel makes it easy. You just need to look the part to be Christian. Live simply, give generously, and that's it. It doesn't matter what's going on in your heart. You can be saved and sanctified by your appearance. We're drawn to it because it makes spirituality quantifiable and accessible. 
Ah, but don't you see, because the piety gospel is so focused on appearance, it's also profoundly crushing. Because how many of us can genuinely say that we are perfect with our appearances? And could this partly be why churches can sometimes be a place that is incredibly anxiety-inducing? A very stressful place to be in. Because we feel like we need to consistently look the part. Could all of this obsession with appearances, could this be what cripples our spiritual walk? That we spend more time looking the part rather than growing closer to Jesus. Grace point. A church that celebrates the piety gospel produces a culture of pride. Where people are looked down on or judged purely based on their appearances. Or when it comes to money, judged purely on their spending habits. But what's more, the piety gospel actually completely misses the point of the biblical gospel. Because as you come to point two with me, we'll realize that one of the essential elements of the true and biblical gospel is that it starts at the heart. And you see, the gospel starts at the heart because when God looks at us, he always begins at the heart. That's how God works. For example, 1 Samuel 16 is a beautiful story. It recounts how God is to choose a king for Israel. God sent Samuel to a man by the name of Jesse who had at least eight sons and God promised that Israel's king would be one of Jesse's sons. And so when Samuel gets to Jesse's house, we're told that there appeared to be a very obvious choice. Eliab was Jesse's eldest son. And as far as ancient cultures go, Eliab, the firstborn, should have been the first choice. Uh, But more than that, we're told that Eliab was impressive in appearance. He served in the military. He was an all-round achiever, probably ducks of his year in high school, right? So good-looking and strong and obvious choice for a king. But then God says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Underline that in your Bibles if you have that. So in the end, David, the youngest son who was smallest in stature, was chosen instead. Why David? Acts 13.22 tells us because David was a man after God's own heart. God always begins at the heart. That makes sense, doesn't it? Proverbs 4 verse 23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Now, of course, we know that when we speak about the heart, we're not referring to the physical organ, right? That's pumping blood throughout your body. The heart in the Bible refers to the very core of our beings, where our emotions and desires dwell, the core of our being. And Proverbs teaches us, guard it. Why? Because everything you do flows from this. And we know this, right? We love to say that we are logical, cognitive beings, and I'm sure you are, but our emotions and our desires guide us, direct us more than we like to admit. So the Bible teaches that a person's heart is the best place to begin if you want to truly know someone, not their appearances, their actions, or their attitudes, but their heart. You know, perhaps that's why we're easily offended when people jump to conclusions about us, right? We feel like, you don't know me. Who are you to judge? And you know what? That's really fair. We are not the sum of our appearances or our actions. But then you see, the Bible tells us, Mark 7, 
that our hearts are fallen and marked by sin. This is for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You know, this passage tells us that problems with sexual immorality, theft, murder, and the like, they're all problems. They're all sin. But the root is the heart. But here's the good news. Psalm 44, 21 tells us God knows the secrets of the heart. God sees all the mess beneath the tree. And he still loves us. He promises to restore us through Christ. He gives a promise that if you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, the one who died for your sins, the one who promises to give you eternal life, then your heart, the core of your being, can be renewed. The Bible promises that you can have fresh desires, new loves, renewed affections. Yes, you will desire God who will always satisfy. God promises, Ezekiel 11 verse 19, to give us a new heart. That's why when the gospel takes residence in a person's life, Romans 10.10 tells us, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's why our preaching every Sunday needs to be from the Bible, the word of God. It was read out to us earlier, right? Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's through the work that the word does in our hearts that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, no? And so the true and biblical gospel collides with the piety gospel. Because while the piety gospel wants to interpret godliness and holiness primarily through appearance and lifestyle, how you live simply, how you give generously, the true and biblical gospel resists that and causes us to keep looking back at the heart. And the God who knows the depths of your heart says, you don't need to be put together. You don't need to have all your appearances perfected. You can trust in me. God says, I can put you back together. You don't need to do anything to earn my acceptance or approval. It's my gift to you by grace. So as you come to point 2B, we discover that the two so-called gospels collide once more. Because the true and biblical gospel actually presents us with a vision of enjoyment and delight that the piety gospel denies. You see, the true gospel is not a series of overcorrections from errors. No, it's not a life just about utility. It doesn't just focus on what's useful and pragmatic. It has space for beauty, for enjoyment, for delight. Because it reflects the Bible's teaching that these things are God's good gifts to us, even in the midst of a broken and fragile world. For example, Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25 says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? What's really interesting here is that the Bible doesn't necessarily equate enjoyment with mindless consumerism or hedonism. 
No, no, just from here we realize there is space to enjoy what we eat and drink, a space to find satisfaction in the goods of this world. And when you think about it, that totally makes sense, right? In the book of Genesis, when God created the world, it was good and very good. Obviously impacted by the fall, but in its original state, good and very good. But very significantly, this speaks of enjoyment that comes from the hand of God. This passage speaks of God as the giver of good things. It speaks of enjoying good things as one in right relationship with God. Grace point, listen. God is a good God who delights in giving his children good gifts. This theme is expanded Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 to 10, where we're told to eat our food with gladness, to drink wine with a joyful heart, to be clothed in white garments. Why white? It's not that slimming, so why white, right? No, in in ancient cultures, white makes life more comfortable in a hot climate. It speaks to anoint our heads with oil. It's to relieve discomfort. We're told to enjoy this with our spouses. Now, this is not a call to consume ourselves silly. It doesn't even deny the call to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. But it does speak of receiving these gifts with gratitude and contentment as those who are already approved by God. God is a good gift who doesn't just delight in giving his children good gifts. He gives these things to stir our gratitude for him. In New Testament, Acts 14 verse 17 says this, Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in the season. He provides you with plenty of food and fill your hearts with joy. This is preaching in the New Testament, which states unequivocally that one of the expressions of God's kindness and generosity towards us is his abundant provisions that fill our hearts with joy. And to 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I want you to notice what's very interesting here. The rich are not to deal with their wealth by giving it all away, though one may choose to do that. I want to be clear. That may be your conviction. But I want you to see here that being poor is not the aim. The rich are told to change their hearts to not be arrogant, to not put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who is certain, who richly provides for our enjoyment. You see, the gospel is not a call towards a simplistic or minimalistic lifestyle. Your purpose is not to become saved and then live simply and direct everything to gospel initiatives or to the poor. You can do that. I want to say you can You may be deeply moved and convinced to do that. I praise God for it. But there is no scriptural imperative that you must do that. What scripture does teach is that there is joy and delight to be found in God's provisions here and today. But you see, very importantly, there is a critical difference between mindless hedonism and a proper enjoyment of gifts. Because the gospel invites us to enjoy in the right way, which is to enjoy these things as God's gifts. 
and to respond with praise and thanks. There's a difference, isn't there? You see, materialism, consumerism, and hedonism is to enjoy these pleasures as an end unto itself. To eat, to drink, to travel, all of this as an affirmation of our autonomy and our success. Or to delight in these things in and of themselves. Yet Christian enjoyment is to receive these things with a deep recognition that God is the giver. And so we enjoy them deeply and give thanks to God for his kind generosity. This is a God, you need to realize this, right? This is a God who created colors, flavors, textures, seasons, and beauty. Most, if not all of these things have no usefulness apart from enjoyment. To cause us to gaze upon these things and just to say, wow. Thank you, God. And we don't have to feel guilty about this. In fact, I actually want to say it could be borderline arrogant to deny these things. Imagine this for a moment. A father says to his child, son or daughter, I got this gift for you. I want you to have it. Then the child says, no, dad, I don't want this gift. I just want you. Now, that sounds really pious, doesn't it? But then the father will say, no, 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 you don't understand. I got this gift for you. I love you. I want you to enjoy this. But the child then says, no, dad, you are enough for me. I don't want any of your things. I just want you. In fact, you know what? Let me give you something instead. That's how many Christians functionally live today. Under the shadow of the piety gospel, it's a sad and tragic place to be in. It gives us the illusion of piety when really it could be rooted in fear or arrogance. Because really the right response to our Heavenly Father's initiative and gift is to say, thank you God for this beautiful gift. Thank you for not just telling me you love me. Thank you for not just sending your son to die for me. Thank you that even in the simple things in life, you still bless me with gifts to treasure. I hope you realize That God delights in giving us things to enjoy, not just things themselves, but to stir our gratitude towards Him, right? Parents, you know this. You love it when your child enjoys the gift you give them. Imagine giving them something and all they do is put it in a cupboard and don't touch it. You might think, oh my goodness, did I get the wrong thing? In sharp contrast, if they took the gift and you see their eyes just like grow bigger, and they rip the wrapping paper apart and they start playing with it and they just like go crazy for hours and you're watching from the other side of the room, right? And they look up at you and they mouth the words like, thank you. You just think, man, I love that. As a parent, you don't feel less treasured or loved. Their grateful receiving of that gift is a grateful receiving of you. Church, that's God's disposition towards us. He loves us and withholds no good things from us. That's why all these passages say, this is all from God. Acts 14, 17, he's the one who's shown us kindness to fill our hearts with joy. That's why there are portions of scripture like Psalm 145. It's an entire chapter committed to just praising and giving thanks to God for all he's done. He created us and we ruined it with sin. And so he still saves us in Christ. He gave us material things to enjoy, but we abuse it. 
We love these things as an end unto itself. We forget God, but the Bible doesn't say, okay, that's it. You don't get it anymore. You don't get good things anymore. You're grounded. No. As new creation under Christ, Holy Scripture, Holy Spirit disciples us to know how to appropriately enjoy these things while still loving God as our chief desire. Grace point. A church that celebrates the biblical gospel produces a culture of grace where people are carefully known and directed to the sweetness of Christ. So this brings us to our final S as it relates to money and wealth. I have a feeling as we work through this, you'll have questions. You're welcome to flick them across to the Q&A link in the back of your page. Come to point three with me as we consider savoring God's gifts. Since it is right and appropriate for us to enjoy our wealth as an expression of God's gift towards us, I want to encourage us to set a system in our budgets and create a category for enjoyment. Now, here's the thing. Typically in our budgets, we have categories for spending and saving, right? Sometimes we may even have a category for serving, But rarely, I'd say, do we have a category for savoring or enjoying. And because we don't have this category, we sometimes do one of three things. Firstly, we savor or we enjoy, but with guilt. We feel like we shouldn't be enjoying this. We feel like I should be giving my money away instead. Like, Why should I spend $2,000 flying to Japan when I give all that money away. Give it to Pastor Elliot, who will go on the holiday for you, right? Like, this is just (laughs) two tickets, please, right? We, we, We savor, but with guilt. Second of all, we savor, but we do it in excess. We savor recklessly. We spend too much because we have no plan on enjoyment and pleasure. We don't allow the Bible to direct our enjoyment. We allow our sheer pleasure and desire to drive it. Or thirdly, we savor, we do, without recognizing God as the one who gives these things. We savor thinking all of this is about me. We steal, we rob God of his glory. But what if we're really intentional about it? What if our theology of enjoyment from Scripture actually means we are allowed, permitted, to set a category within our budgets to enjoy God's good gifts without compromising on our responsibilities to love and serve those around us, without hindering our ability to save, without giving up on opportunities to serve? Is that possible? You know, some of you may be listening to this sermon and you're feeling really uneasy. I can see it on your faces. It sounds like Pastor Elliot is encouraging you to spend all your money to indulge in yourselves, right? No, no, quite the contrary. I think that you're already enjoying, but you're not doing it biblically. Excessive hedonism is a possibility, but not a necessity. So church, as we look into the new year, can we set a system? This will guard us from either worship or worry. It stops us from worshiping our money, constantly chasing it, thinking it will give us happiness. We recognize everything comes from God. It stops us from worrying about money because we know we have a plan. We're not living paycheck to paycheck anymore. Everything comes from God. 
I'm going to show you how it can be done in our conclusion when I speak about a vision for Grace Point. But let me just encourage you. Let's have a word out there. Let's have a system. Next, I want to encourage our savoring to include a relational dimension to share it with others. Philippians 2.2 gives us really interesting insight. It tells us that joy is complete when it is shared. That is, our enjoyment of something is amplified when it's shared with others. That's true, right? Whenever we receive a piece of good news, we want others to know. Good food is best shared with good friends. Even good movies. I'm not sure if you realize it, right? I'm the kind of guy who doesn't like watching movies with people a lot because they keep asking questions. Right? Like, who's that? I don't know. I'm, just, I'm just following like you are, right? But then there are some movie partners who are really, really good, right? You're watching. No one's talking. Oh, so good, right? <laughs> but then often there's a dramatic moment and you turn to the person and you're like, oh, right? And then they share that moment with you, right? Those are good movie partners, right? I can't believe that just happened. Good moments are best experience when they are shared, no? Sharing your savoring experience amplifies your joy. That's how God created us, to live and love in community. So whatever your savoring looks like, give it a relational and sharing dimension. And lastly, I want us to savor while singing praises and recognizing that God has given all of these things to stir our longing for eternity. Singing praises and giving thanks, as I mentioned, is a right way to enjoy God's gifts. It's honoring God as the creator and giver. Church, I want you to see that seen in this way, enjoyment of these things done properly with gratitude can actually be a form of worship. Do you see? It's a form of rest. Because you see, when we sit down and when we enjoy a good meal with good company, we are actually slowing down and giving our bodies, our minds, our hearts, the sort of recovery it needs, right? But it's also spiritual rest, right? I'm not exaggerating this. Every bite and every sip we take can deepen our gratitude and appreciation to God for all of these things. We're slowing down and we are thanking God. Rather than just rushing our way through this meal, we're just pausing and going, oh my goodness, right? Like, God, you could have just given us rice and water for the rest of our lives and we wouldn't know any better. But that you would give us kimchi. Namnung. Coke. Why not just water? but that God would delight in saying, I love you. Enjoy these things. I'm your giver. I'm your sustainer. Don't you see? Enjoying these things with gratitude rightly worships God. Every laugh we share with people around us reminds us that even in a broken world, God is still with us. He cares for us. He's going to sustain us. But of course, right? All of these is a foreshadow of our eternal rest. The rest that comes when Jesus returns. When all the mess of this broken world will be no more and our enjoyment of him will be complete. Because then we won't just have the gifts, we will have the giver in full. Are we able to enjoy things in such a way where there's just this moment where we go, oh my goodness, this is great. 
eternity must be greater. It's a heaven meets earth moment. We realize that, you know what, the brokenness in this world, it will be no more when Christ returns, stirring our longing for eternity. Is there a way to do this? I think there is. Being really intentional with savoring actually deepens our faith. It allows us to give thanks, to praise, to worship God with a new dimension. And unsurprisingly, it causes us to look forward to the new creation. When even the best things of this world pales in comparison to the glories that are to come. So church, can I share a vision for us here at Grace Point? Um, My hope and prayer is that we will integrate everything we've learned over the last four weeks and put them into action. A sort of action that will help us to be more responsible with handling our money, that will help us to be more generous, that will guard us from financial mismanagement, but will also allow us to receive God's gifts with gratitude. If you look at your additional outline, you will see a double-sided table. If you're listening online, you can find this table, gracepoint.org.au slash go slash table. I've already been criticized for the lack of beauty in this table. So if you want to design a better one for me, please go ahead and do so. But on page one, this this one right here, you'll see the page numbers at the bottom. You will see a sample budgeting table that I've put together based on the five S's. Uh, I'll run through it very briefly. On the so column, we have $65,000 as a figure, annual income. This is after tax to make things simple. And as you can see, what I've tried to do is allocate hypothetical percentages of the 65000 income into the categories of spend, save, serve, and saver. Now, there's a lot of details. I can't go through all of it, but I want to say three very important things. You ready? Firstly, these percentages are not biblically mandated. I'll say that again. They are not biblically mandated. You must not think that the Bible says you have to save 20, you have to serve with 15. These are pretend numbers to illustrate how this budgeting could work. So you will need to go away, pray, consider, maybe talk to your family about how to strategize and apply this. It's not biblically mandated. Second of all, the figures under the so category can be anything, can be any figure for this plan to work. In other words, you don't need to be a full-time worker for the system to have effect. You could be a uni student with a casual salary. What you might do then is just adjust it to a weekly figure. You could still be in school and only receive pocket money each week or month. You could be a retiree receiving a pension or drawing on your super or investments. Everyone is in a position to do something like this. All you need to do is make the appropriate adjustments to the figures. And parents, I want to say this to you. I really want to encourage you to teach and model this to your children. Parents, I'll say that again. Teach and model this to your children. They will learn this. And everyone else, I want to encourage you to try this as an act of faith. You see, the person who says, I will wait to save, never saves. The person who says, I'll wait till I have money and then I'll start giving, trust me, never gives. Biblical financial stewardship is a muscle. And like any muscle, it requires a plan, a habit, and training to see it grow. Thirdly, 
I hope you can see that building a budget like this actually allows us to be responsible, to enjoy, while also not compromising on your call to be sacrificial as a Christian. So run your eyes through the rows. You'll see that in the second row, I've given a summary of what each of these categories mean. And if you want more detail, you can visit um, old sermons if you've missed any. In the next row, I've given some example line items. They're not exhaustive. They're meant to give you an idea of what usually falls under these categories. You can massage it a little bit. That's fine. I'm just trying to give you an idea. But the next row is quite interesting. These are some items that sometimes overlap. So for example, right? suppose you are buying a new sofa. I know some people are getting married. You're buying a new sofa for your new home. And obviously, it's a household necessity. So you might think that comes from the spend category, spending on what's necessary. But really, right? Let me, let me be really honest with you. How much do you need to spend on something you sit on? Just get a milk crate, right? Just sit on a milk crate. What's wrong with that, right? <laughs> but you, you laugh at that, right? But that's actually how sometimes we make decisions, right? We go to Ikea and we go, there's 1,500 100. Okay, 100 probably break too quickly. Let's go for the 500 one. But that, 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 we just think utility and usefulness. Now, not wrong. And I want to say sometimes your budget will constrain you. That's fine. But what if, what if we can integrate some categories? So for example, right, sofas can be as cheap as a couple of hundred dollars. But what if you want something with a particular color or particular design, a particular type of cushioning? Is that bad? Couples who are getting married, is that bad? I'm not looking at you, right? <laughs> well, it's not bad. It could be for your enjoyment, right? So you could actually integrate your saver category into your sofa purchasing adventures. That increase allows you to begin to enjoy something that is also useful. You can get something useful, but also nice to enjoy. And here's the thing, because you know it's coming from the saver category. I'm willing to guarantee, because you've prayed about this, you are going to be a lot more intentional about sharing it and giving thanks to God for it. It is no longer a haphazard accidental purchase. So every time you sit on that sofa, you can think to yourself, my goodness, right? I could have bought something much cheaper and that would have been fine. But thank you, God, for giving us space in our budget to have something a little nicer. Thank you, God. Like, you don't need to do this, God. Milk crates are fine. <laughs> but that you would delight in allowing us to enjoy something like this. It's beautiful, isn't it? I've got a few more examples in the table. I'm sure you can imagine more. But then here's where the rubber hits the road. Turn over to the next page. I've given you five points to ponder. What I really want you to do is spend a few minutes using these categories and then mapping out what you currently do, currently. Fill it out as best as you can, and I'm confident some categories, maybe 0%, maybe negative, I don't know what it is, right? But just no judgment, no one's going to see it, just fill out what you're currently doing. And then the following questions are designed to help you think through how you first fill that table, and then lastly, what I have is an invitation for you to fill out the table again, but as a plan and as an aspiration for the new year. You've got a couple of weeks to pray through this. If you are convinced that these five categories are right and biblical, if you want to follow Jesus in these ways, what could that look like for you in 2024?
Put your estimated income into so category. Work out your expenses. Have a plan for how much you want to save, serve, and savor. And as you do this, look at the last two points to ponder. I love to invite you to do two things. Firstly, invite someone to journey with you on this. It could be someone in your CG, someone in your 321 group, someone sitting next to you. Having accountability is a better guarantee that you will follow through with this. Second of all, I want to invite you to revisit this frequently. I mean, let's turn back to the first page for just a moment. I've just done some figures. It may not be completely correct, but if you just look at the save and serve category, I just crunched some numbers. I want you to realize how powerful a plan can be. That if you save a particular amount, and if you take compound interest in mind, right, wonder of the world, right, you can have an amazing outcome in a couple of decades from now. Same with serving, right? Um, if people in our church were more strategic and planned for this, we'd be able to amplify and multiply our gospel impact for our city and our world. All it takes is a little bit of prayerful planning. So I want to invite you to revisit whatever plan you've come up with frequently, monthly, quarterly, I'm not sure. But don't just fill this out and let it gather dust. Revisit it, make modifications if you need to. The great reformer Martin Luther said this, it's, on the screen, if silver and gold are things evil in themselves, then those who keep away from them deserve to be praised. But if they are good creatures of God, which we can use both for our needs of our neighbor and for the glory of God, is not a person silly, yes, even unthankful to God, if he refrains from them as if they were evil? You remember this from our first sermon. Church, God sees beyond our appearances. He looks at our hearts. The gospel transforms us. It gives us freedom. Freedom is actually a very dangerous thing. But freedom within biblical constraints produces life. My hope and prayer is that this is what causes us to have more wisdom with our wealth. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the time we've spent over the last four weeks to unpack and explore uh, the sensitive topic of wealth, I thank you so much, dear Lord, that you give us so much wisdom in your word. I thank you that our salvation in many ways is not impacted by how much we give or sacrifice, but um, our salvation in Christ radically changes how we view this tool that you've given to us. And so, Father, we pray that we will neither worship money as our chief savior, nor will we constantly worry that we never have enough because we are trusting in you. How do we navigate these two things? My hope and prayer, dear Lord, is that our sermon series would have made us wiser. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.